Good morning. Good morning. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's thank the Lord for his word. Heavenly Father, majestic is your name. We praise your name. We shout your name, Lord. And we so look forward to seeing you face to face. Thank you for this day, for this fabulous church and the loved ones gathered here in your name. And we praise you and ask your blessing upon the rest of the service. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Have a seat. I want to take a knee real quick because my shoe's untied. <laughs> that was going to bother me the whole sermon. Thank you very much, my friend Janice. Oh, it's good to take communion together, to be church family together, to enjoy just worshiping the Lord together. I'm excited to get into Hebrews. Do you have your Bibles open? Are you reading Hebrews every day? Just read it every day. Just keep going. It's great. It's a great book. Um, send me questions. I'd love to, I'll, I'll try to address them. Um, Hebrews starts in such an amazing way, but it's probably good for us to understand a little bit about the structure of Hebrews because it'll help us understand why the author of Hebrews and, you know, come to Wednesday nights and we'll tell you all about who wrote Hebrews. I don't know. Um, but it's organized, this book is really organized around five warnings to the churches. Now, what you're going to hear over and over is how Jesus is better than everything. Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than Moses. But, but the way the book is organized is really around these kind of ideas. Hey, don't drift away from faith. Hey, don't fall away from the truth that you uh, held on to. Um, after you become a Christian, don't go on sinning. There's no other sacrifice for you. Like, that's, that's, that's what else is there for you if, if you continue in your life of sin after? Um, don't reject Jesus. Uh, um, don't stop remaining in Jesus. Like, there's these five passages that kind of organize the structure of the book that are really challenging for, especially for those of us. I mean, if you were going to ask me, I would say, absolutely you cannot lose your salvation. I have adopted children. You can't get unadopted. That's not how it works. You, you're, it's from one family to another family, from one kingdom to another kingdom. And yet, I'm a big fan of not making the scriptures fit into my theological boxes, but rather letting the scriptures say what they're going to say. And over and over in Hebrews, we're going to have to wrestle with these stark warnings. And I would like to remind you that this is written, and there's great mystery around 
Who wrote Hebrews around exactly which audience? It's not a church epistle. It doesn't say, this is to the church in Seaside. Or it doesn't start, hey guys, this is Paul, like some of our other, most of our other letters in the New Testament do. And so there's some mystery about who actually penned this, and there's some mystery about where its original authorship was, and there's even some mystery about the intended audience. Like clearly the author has at sometimes has, has uh, Gentile believers in mind, but, but it is a book that is written without a doubt to Christian people. And this is important because as we go and we'll go, well, this passage that says like, don't drift away from faith. And you go, well, maybe this person wasn't really a Christian. That's a category you made up. The author of Hebrews did not make that up. No, rather, um, this author would like to challenge people like me and you to remain faithful, to not give up. And the strategy over and over is going to be to look, to admire, to behold Jesus. This is written to an audience kind of on the verge, like an audience that might be discouraged, an audience that is struggling to endure in their faith. You guys know what that's like, right? You guys know what it's like to be so fired up and be like, I can't stop talking about Jesus. Everywhere I go, the checker's like, that'll be $9, and it makes me go, oh, wow, that reminds me of Jesus. Can I tell you all about Like, you just have those moments where, like, everything is, is like a gift, and it's awesome. And then you also have those times where you go, man, I am run down. I still identify as a Christian, but I am struggling. If I was allowed to say I'm disappointed or even mad at the way God's running the show, I would say that, but I don't come from a theological tradition that lets me say that because I haven't read the Psalms. Go ahead and read the Psalms. You're fine. It's easy to see why these folks were where they were, too. Hebrews is, again, notoriously hard to date, but it's early, um, and it's in part early, we know, because of who was passing it around and using it very, very early on. This was, you know, seen as scripture by the early church, but as it's written, say it's 20 or 25 years um, past the events of the crucifixion and resurrection, and those same people who had anticipated that Jesus would... Um, lead a military coup against Rome and get Israel, you know, their nation back and all of that stuff. It, those same people then saw the resurrection and went, ah, this is how it's happening. And Jesus said he was coming back and the disciples were standing there at Jesus' ascension and an angel showed up and go, hey, he's going to come back just like he went. And they thought Jesus was coming back in their time. Every generation of Christians has thought this might be the time when Jesus comes back. And I think we're supposed to live with that expectancy. But also, as you look around and go, I am 50 years old, and the world has not solved itself. I have been joyfully awaiting the anticipation of Jesus and the reconciliation of all things since I was like six years old. What's going on? Discouragement can set in. You can start to wander. You can start to have your heart. Yeah, I'm still a Christian, but maybe this whole serving God and money thing can work out. 
Or maybe I could find some happiness over here as well. Or maybe I, you know, maybe as I wait, I'm just discouraged. I got to find, I got to find my happiness somewhere. I'm going to go look in other places. Or maybe it's just discouragement. Just depression and sadness that sets in as you go. I've been praying for this for my whole life. It's been 25 years since we saw Jesus ascend. It's been 25 years since the events of Pentecost that were so exciting. And we're starting to get frustrated. You can see how they would be there. There's a word that maybe a generation or two before us used that was, I don't know, I, my grandma used to use it, is, is backslider. And it's not a great word. It's not, it's not what we're trying to communicate. But there's a word that's floating around, you know, culture today that's, that says deconstruction. That I'm taking this faith and I'm saying, hey, maybe it needs to be torn apart. Maybe I misunderstood the point Maybe I put my hope in something that, that doesn't seem to, and I know this was my story in my teens and 20s. And when you are frustrated with religion, and when the trappings of faith have let you down enough, and when you find yourself frustrated and discouraged and wandering, one of the reasons we all love the song, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing, is because it has that line, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. You feel it, I feel it, you know what I'm talking about. When you get there, what do you do? Well, the author of Hebrews is ministering to a group of people in a spot like that. They're deconstructing. They're maybe a little backslidden. They're frustrated and tired. And over and over, the author of Hebrews is going to say, behold Jesus. Yeah, but the church did this thing over here and it was, okay, okay. But behold Jesus. Yeah, but I've been praying that God would solve this. And he has, okay, okay, okay. But behold Christ in his majesty. We're not worshiping the church. We're not worshiping your ability to get better. We're not worshiping the, a magic trick that would heal people. No, rather, a better life and healing and hope. These are byproducts of beholding the person of Jesus Christ. So the big idea of the book of Hebrews is going to be look at Jesus you know, I care a lot about children's ministry, about youth ministry. These are very close to my heart. And my hope for our young ones as they come through uh, here at Lighthouse, like God has no grandchildren. We can't make our children be Christians. They're going to have to make that choice on their own. But my hope is that they would know to receive and follow or to reject the real Jesus. Not a cultural version of him, not a Baptist Jesus or a Arminian Jesus or a Calvinist Jesus or whatever, but the real person, Jesus Christ, that they would know what God is actually like. And that's the hope of the author of Hebrews. As it's all fallen apart, as you're struggling with frustration, as you're deconstructing, behold, 
Jesus. It's my experience that Jesus is attractive to all of us. You know, when I was um, young, <laughs> shut up. When I was in my teens, in my 20s, especially, the biggest threats to my faith, and I wonder if you resonate with this, but the biggest threats to my faithfulness to Jesus were first the problem of suffering, the fact that there's so much suffering in the world, I didn't understand why, it, why polio is still a thing. You know what I mean? Like just the fact that there's people around the world suffering greatly and God's not fixing it right now. Um, and then the, the second thing was the moral failings of people in the church. Um, you know, just watching televangelists fall right and left and my own pastor have huge moral failures and, and, you know, kind of getting to that point in my life where I knew for sure that all the generation before me didn't know nothing and I knew everything. And seeing the, seeing the flaws in, in the Christians older than me, thankfully I had faithful parents that demonstrated faithfulness. But, but, um, but those were the two biggest um, threats to, to my faith. And I'm here to tell you that I'm still angry about the suffering of the world. Like, I don't think that what the author of Hebrews wants us to do is to say, ah, just give up thinking about big questions. I'm still angry at the failings of Christian leaders. Maybe more than ever, I'm like, you guys are making us all look bad. It's always a guy who's like, he was a baseball coach and a pastor. I'm like, ah, oh, come on. <laughs> That's, those are the things I do. But as I, wrestle, as I wrestled with that, as I continue to wrestle with those kind of ideas... The thing I can't get away from, the thing, the, the idea, the person that, that continues to make me go, where else would I go but to the foot of the cross, is Jesus. It's not religion. It's not a denomination. It's not the trappings of faith. It is Christ himself. Suffering is still terrible. But in Jesus, God lowered himself to become a sufferer, to save sufferers. Jesus knows far more about poverty and pain and illness and suffering than I do. And when it comes to moral failures and Christian leaders, it's horrible. It still makes me angry. But Jesus is both the Savior and the judge. And I continue to behold Jesus. I understand that it is his perfection that other people's sin has offended far more than mine. And not only that, as I behold the perfection of Christ, I go, I shouldn't be anybody's judge. I got my own problems. I need a savior. And if I'm looking for a leader, who would I follow? Whose philosophy would I adhere to? Whose way of life would I walk behind who would be the rabbi that i would live in the dust of his feet who but jesus as i behold him i move away from anger and towards peace and faith i stop wandering off myself because of the failings of other people because of the frustrations of life and i begin to simply live a life of worship just falling down and worshiping him at the feet of almighty god the maker the sustainer the savior as jesus becomes all i see i see everything else more clearly does that make sense 
as Jesus is the only lens, as Jesus takes up my whole field of vision, I see everything more clearly. And I find faith where sorrow and anger anger used to be. Behold, Jesus of Nazareth. You have doubts? It's okay. Start with Jesus. Behold Him. You have questions? Are you hurting? Life has been a disappointment? Behold the person of Jesus. Get to know Jesus. I'm excited about starting Hebrews because I'm going to be a broken record for maybe a year. We're going to talk about who Jesus is. The author of Hebrews begins where he will stay, where we will stay, with the glory of the person of Jesus. The first verse says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. How wonderful. God is a God who reveals himself, who makes himself known. It didn't have to be that way. In fact, one of the reasons we profess that God is love is that that's what love does, is wants to be with, introduce, spend time with the object of our affection. And from the very beginning of the story, the God of the Bible is presented as a God who wants to introduce himself to his creation. Which might start us off with, if you are not a believer, if you're struggling, if you're disappointed, if there's been some struggle, if you feel like you're not good enough, if you feel like the church isn't good enough, by the way, if you feel like you're good, not good enough, welcome to the club. If you feel like the church has failed, yeah, we know, we're trying. Start with the person of Jesus, because God is not far. Those who seek, find him. He's not far if you'll look. And the author of Hebrews wants to spend all of their time just going, I know. I know there's reasons to walk away. I know there's reasons for discouragement. But God desires to introduce himself to you. Long ago, the book of Hebrews begins. God has been revealing his nature to creation and especially especially to humanity since the beginning. Let there be light starts the creation narrative. It's almost like the first thing that happens is reveal. Imagine a, a room that's, that's empty and chairs are turned over and whatever, and it needs to be organized. We need to make something of it. That's kind of like the image of this primordial ocean that we see at the very beginning of, of Genesis. And then the first thing that happens is God goes, turn on the light switch. Let there be light. The laws of nature. Before plants and animals, before the sun or moon, before night and day, there was a God who spoke revelation and creation into existence and said, this is good. We know God not because we found him, but because he has chosen to introduce himself, reveal his nature to us. 
long ago and in many ways. In many ways is shorthand. You can tell that this is written by a Hebrew person to a Hebrew person because uh, as, as they say, in, in many ways by the prophets, it's like taking in the whole, what we call the Old Testament, the whole of the Hebrew scriptures, the former prophets, the writings, the, the, uh, the, the Psalms, the whole thing. There have been so many ways for so many years, prophet after prophet. God has continually, consistently, faithfully introduced himself to mankind. He has not given up as we have stumbled. If it's a good idea to get toxic people out of your life, then God should have gotten us out of his life like generation one, right? Can't you imagine the Bible being like God created Adam and Eve? Day four, God was like, well, but over and over, he continues to pursue us long ago. And in many ways, the heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 1 says none are without excuse because of the creation. Then you think through as as a Hebrew thinker, as you're hearing this Hebrew author write, and you go many ways, what were some of those ways? Man, God talked to us through a burning bush. He talked to us through the wonders of Egypt as he, as he proved his dominance over Egyptian gods and then later proved his dominance over the Canaanite gods. God has given us his law. He's a God of order and of human dignity. But even in that, the law by the time of the first century had been reason for dispute. So God introduces himself in the Old Testament law, but then we start having fights like, um, you shall not uh, murder. Well, what do you mean by murder? I mean, what if he was really, you know, yappy? If he was asking for it, aren't we allowed to give it to him? Like, isn't that a rule? Shall not commit adultery. All right, but what if you don't know my life? What exactly are the rules? I know this from being a youth pastor for 25 years. If you... Um, say, okay, guys, we're going to play this game that I just learned, and here are the rules to it. Especially the junior and senior boys will just be thinking, how can I break those rules without technically breaking those rules? How can I cheat as much as possible to gain an advantage? And go, what? You didn't say that. I'm a basketball ref. I see that all the time. What? What? And that's what had happened with the law. So God had revealed himself in these statutes, in the law, and yet there are questions. What do you mean by that? Many times, in many ways, you think about the Old Testament. God revealed himself with floods and victorious battles and talking donkeys and one time with a left-handed assassin with mountains and stars over dinners and in speeches, with miracles in many ways. And still, there's only so much you can know about God from all of that revelation. The Hebrew Scriptures bear witness to the glory of God all from every page, and yet there's only so much you can know. Maybe we would think about revelation like this. Um, If you were to go to Florence, Italy, and look at the statue of David, you would not say... Where did they find this piece of marble? 
No, you would go, somebody did this. Whoever did this must be a great chiseler. I don't know, sculptor. sculptor. That's what I'm looking for. <laughs> chiseler sounds like a Batman bad guy. <clears throat> um, you would just look at, at this statue and go, seriously, there's an intellect behind this. This is what general revelation is. When we're talking about the heavens declare the glory of God, that's what the authors are talking about. That you look, go out to the night sky, you sit under a redwood tree, you look at a brook babbling, you look at you know, the power of, of uh, an avalanche or a flood, and you go, whoa, something's going on here. There's an intelligence behind this. I don't know his name. I don't know what he's like, but I know I, I can see the glory of God in the creation. If you're in that place in Florence, Italy, and, and you took a tour, and there was an informed tour guide, you could, you could learn a lot. That's special revelation. The tour guide might go, well, this is when it was made. It was made for, to be up there. That's why his hands are so big. I just learned that. Um, David's hands are super big because he was supposed to be like up on uh, like hundreds of feet up in the air, so they'd be able to see his hands. I don't know. Who knew? Um, but, uh, you know, he's, that's why he's super tall and the whole thing. And this is, this is what they, you know, why they made him all muscly and all like that. You learn, you, you learn things, right? And you go, okay, this is, this is like the special revelation of the Old Testament scriptures. We learn a lot about God by the writings of the prophets. We're, they're great tour guides. But what if you found Michelangelo's journal? If you're a male under 40, I'm talking about the sculptor, not the Ninja Turtle. So we're, so we're clear. What if, you, what if you found Michelangelo's journal and you got to read what he was going through as he sculpted this? More than that, what if you got to sit down and have a cup of coffee with him and hear what his voice sounded like and see how tall he was and, and kind of get the manner of him? Over that coffee, I'm sure it's a macchiato, by the way. <laughs> He's Italian. Um, I'm sure that you would have such a deeper appreciation for this statue. As great as general revelation is, and as wonderful as the prophetic writings of the Hebrew Scriptures are, God saw fit to actually introduce Himself to us in a more profound way. Verse 2 says, But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. Do you want to know what God's like? You look at Jesus. Actually, the Greek is better translated in the last of these days. So the inference here is not that God has spoken to us in the last days, but rather that this is the final speech. This is, what, this is all God wants us to know, um, that, that God has continued to talk to us. The same God of the Old Testament has spoken to us. Finally, we don't need anything except Jesus. We're not waiting for someone else. Most completely. You know what God's like? Look at Jesus. That's completely what God is like. And most definitively, through His Son. If we want to know what God's like, we behold Jesus. He is the lens through which we interpret creation. He is the lens through which we interpret all other revelations. Every theological discussion finds its answer in the person of Jesus. It is amazing how many of us can get drawn away to theology and neglect depth of relationship with Jesus. 
So this is when you go, well, thou shalt not murder. What do you mean by that? And Jesus says, don't, don't even call your brother a fool. That's what we mean by that. We go, oh, we're going to let Jesus interpret that for us. Adultery. Well, what do you mean by that? And Jesus goes, don't even, it's about a heart issue. It's about taking care of your eyes and, and, and your hands. And don't even look, don't even meditate in that direction. Jesus is the means by which we understand all of the Old Testament. Behold Jesus. So let's just take, you know, 10 minutes and behold Jesus. Now, we're going to do this a lot in Hebrews. I'm not going to give you, um, if you've been walking with the Lord for a little while, um, I'm not going to give you, and I'm not going to attempt to sound clever or smart and give you new information. We have maybe 10 or 15 more minutes of our week to simply meditate on who Jesus is. Think about him. Behold him. Let him transform your heart. Let him be the lens through which you see everything else. The text goes on and says that by, in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Jesus is the heir of all things. Most commentators agree that the author of Hebrews has Psalm 2 in view here. Psalm 2, let me just read you verses 7 and 8, says this. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. Yahweh said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. And then that first generation of Christians goes, oh my gosh, this was about Jesus. Jesus is the one that God has given all of the nations to. All of the nations ran away from God way back in the early parts of Genesis, and in Christ, they are all being welcomed back. You'll remember that this was the third temptation that Satan gave to Jesus. Bow down to me and I'll give you the nations. You won't have to die. Just bow down to me. And it was a deal that Jesus wasn't willing to take and instead, in his faithfulness, inherited the nations by the cross. There's some people that get a little bent out of shape and it's easy to do. I'm a little bent out of shape over it too. The, or by bent out of shape, I don't mean upset. I just mean like, wow, these scriptures are marvelous and very difficult. Um, some have puzzled, is maybe the best way to say, at the idea of inheritance because in order for inheritance to happen, the father has to die. That's how inheritance works. And of course, God the Father does not die, but rather, it was the death of the Son that made him a worthy inheritor of the nations, through whom also he created the world. If you start feeling a little dizzy and go, how is all of this possible? Then you're starting to behold Jesus properly. Not only is he the inheritor, he's the creator. Jesus is not the inheritor of a fortune he didn't build. Jesus isn't the son that 
dad built an empire and the son just walks in without doing any work and says, okay, now it's mine. It's not that kind of inheritance. Rather, Jesus was the word in the beginning. Here, the author agrees strongly with the gospel of John. You'll remember that says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and that word created everything and then that word became the light of men and in Jesus rescued the world. Behold, Jesus, Jesus is the one who created it and then when it fell apart, saved it that he might be its rightful inheritor as well. Guys, just take a look at Jesus. I know there are reasons to be discouraged. I know that life is difficult, but don't give up. Behold him who is your creator and your savior. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He radiates the very nature of God, as you get to see Jesus in the Gospels, as you have a relationship with Jesus, you're seeing God, it is coming out of Him. God's nature is coming out of Him because it is in Him. What a high Christology. Hebrews has an incredibly high view of Christ, the mystery of Jesus' two natures, very man and yet very God. When we are beholding Jesus, we are seeing what a man should actually be like, and we are seeing what God actually is like. Don't let the frustrations of modern life rob you of seeing the God-man clearly. God can't be seen. He's spirit. So cloaked in humanity, Jesus makes God visible. The exact imprint of his nature, we are told. You know, sometimes fathers and sons can be a lot alike, but an exact imprint... I'm starting to look in the mirror more and more and going, Larry, get out of the mirror. What's, what's happening here? It's a problem. I guess he's a good enough looking guy, but I don't, you know. Sorry, Pop, I'm sure he's on YouTube today. I love you, dude. <laughs> but the exact nature, the exact imprint, truly Jesus was human and the inheritor of God's authority, but also truly Jesus is God. Because only a share in the divine nature could leave a man with the exact imprint of God. Behold Jesus and only Jesus. Look, I, I think one of the reasons, I wasn't actually thinking of it, but as I've been meditating on it after I decided to go through Hebrews, I think one of the like subconscious things is, look, this is an election year. It's going to, it's, this is going to be terrible. <laughs> this is going to be so bad. I mean, it's, the world's going to just be, everybody's going to be mad at everybody. At least we get the Olympics halfway through. <laughs> That'll be good. We're like two weeks. We'll be like USA. And then we'll go back to hating each other's guts. <laughs> you know what we're going to do, Lighthouse? Behold Jesus. That's how we're going to handle 2024. He upholds the universe by the, by the word of his power. Christ's work is finished. 
But that is not to say that he is not actively working. If you have an idea that Jesus died, rose again, sat down at the right hand of the Father, and is currently like being fed peeled grapes and fanned by you know, an angel with a palm front and not concerned about the goings-on of earth, then you believe in the Greek pantheon. And I hear the Percy Jackson series is great. Go nuts. But that's not Jesus. Jesus is active now, upholding the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the sustainer of all things. You know, I do enjoy listening to people and reading people much smarter than me. And, and over and over in philosophy, you hear the, the, the yearning for a unifying principle. What is it that could be described that binds together the, the four uh, you know, forces of physics? And, and what is it that could bind literature and art and beauty and hard sciences? What is it that can make sense of all these things? And in Scripture, we go, it's not a thing, it's a hymn. The person who is the theory of everything, the one that we're looking for when we're trying to figure out the root of all being, the lawgiver that has ordered the laws of physics and, bio and, and biology and chemistry, which means if you are in a field that has to do with physics or biology or chemistry, then that means you just get to spend your life worshiping, just learning what is God like, how has he ordered the universe. It is the rhema autos dynamis, the spoken word, rhema, of his autos dynamis power that upholds the universe. It is God's speech, the speech of Jesus, the word of God that continues to uphold the universe. Do you understand that completely? No? Then why don't we bow down before it? He made the cosmos. He sustains the cosmos. And someday he will remake the cosmos. The next line in Hebrew says, after making purification for sin. What a very Jewish phrase. We don't think very much about, you know, uh, well, I'm not going to say that. I don't have time. It's not only that our sins are bad or deserving of punishment, but Jews have this, this wonderful idea of what purity is. It's not that you can be not sinful and still impure. If you're a shepherd, if you have to clean up uh, after the stables, if you have helped birth a baby, if there's a lot of reasons that you might not have participated in sin and still not be pure to worship in the temple. Jesus not only paid for our sins, but he makes us pure, able to interface with God. There's going to be a time later in Hebrews, you know it, where we are encouraged to approach the throne of grace. That's ridiculous. You know your heart. Does your heart belong in the throne room of God? Purity? And yet, what Jesus did for you is to make purification for sin. In a culture like ours, we don't like to think 
you know, about the idea that I might not be enough to be somewhere. In fact, I think kind of one of the best things about Western culture is this idea that, man, if you can do it and do it well, you can belong there. Why not you? Go get it. But man, we can't think I can be good enough to be in the throne room of God. Rather, we have to say, I needed a Savior, and Jesus made purification for my sins. And then sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. He sat down because even though Jesus is still active, sustaining the world, any discussion about who the king is, is done, is over. There's not an election coming up. There's not a war that's going to be fought. There's not, we don't have to decide who is going to rule the cosmos now or forever. It is the king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus, that is the king on the throne without question. What sovereignty means is that Jesus rules without question. Sovereignty does not mean that he has made every decision, you know, like moving the universe around like pieces on a chessboard. Rather, it means there is no threat to the rule of Jesus in the universe. Jesus is God. It's been solved. On a hill outside of Jerusalem sits a place where there was an empty cross and nearby there sits still an empty tomb. So before you give up, before discouragement robs you of joy, as you deconstruct, as you decide what parts of faith you have held on to that maybe you're faulty and need to be done away with. The one person not to let go of. The one place your eyes can never look away from is Jesus. The question we have so many questions about modern life. Where's God in this tragedy and, and that? And where's God in this broken relationship? And why are things so hard? And there's a, there's a million reasons for difficulty. And the scriptures give us one answer. And that is, behold, Jesus. My encouragement for you this week, and I guess it might look different for each of us, but is this. This week, do whatever you can to behold Him. What do you need to do? Do you need to cancel some meetings so you can make some margin in your life? Do you need to, do you need to delete some apps because it turns out your next high score is not the most important part of your life? Do you need to, do you need to reschedule some things? Do you need to reprioritize some things? Do you need to be a little worse at work so you can be a little closer to Jesus? Do you need to hold hands with your spouse and, and pray instead of getting your way once or twice this week? What do you need to do so that your vision can be filled with Christ? Because when we see Jesus more clearly, we see everything more clearly. Heavenly Father, God, 
I would really love for this to be a place, for this to be a church where this is just, this is just all we do is live life with you at the center. Lord, I don't think that means we're inactive. Lord, I think you call us to all kinds of of meaningful works and, and all kinds of important things and all kinds of sacrifices and victories and joys and all kinds of stuff. Lord, I anticipate us doing plenty, but if it starts with just our ingenuity, ugh, God, we just don't want it. We want it to start with seeing you clearly. God, thanks for communion today. That we have a moment to think about your body and bloodshed. Lord, would you send us into the world as people who are worshiping you every moment of our life? In Jesus' name, amen.